I'm not concerned in my life right now with my generation ending racism. I am not. I am concerned with the children that we're bringing up who have the opportunity to take advantage of every opportunity to be exactly who they want to be. That's my focus. Because we're not going to get it right. We haven't gotten it right. I'm just being honest. We haven't gotten it right. We have systems that we cling on to and hold on to because we are not willing to try a different way. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the Courageous Conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Uh, good evening, John. Good How evening, Kiva. Good, good. Welcome, everybody, to our second uh, edition of Courageous Conversations Towards the Race to Social Justice. Uh, my name is Kiva White. I'm your co-host. And as you can see, I am the Black guy. I've been this way for a very long time. John? I'm John Kepner. Uh, I'm the white guy. And uh, Kiva and I share a lot of interests, including the subject for tonight, racial justice and our series. Uh, but also we share a love of the word of the letter K. K for Kiva, K for Kepner, and K for knowledge. Uh, we have a thirst for knowledge. We're looking for knowledge out of these sessions. Uh, Kiva calls it the K factor, right, Kiva? That's right. The K factor is, is very important, particularly around this topic that we're going to be discussing here uh, uh, in our podcast uh, this evening. And, you know, the goal of our podcast is really to promote social justice through honest uh, and even sometimes difficult conversations. You know, uh, John and I have found our conversations to have deepened over the years, uh, you know, uh, as you know, a black guy and a white guy having these in-depth conversations around race. Uh, it really has led us to, you know, invite other guests to share their uh, honest experiences and learning perspectives around this issue. And so we hope these conversations will also help uh, our listeners and even our guests uh, on their own personal journey of discovery and knowledge acquisition as it pertains to uh, race, racial injustice and social injustices in our society. So we're excited about the work that we do here uh, on this podcast. And so, John, uh, who do we have as our guest uh, for today? Well, I'm, I'm really delighted um, to uh, introduce Tim Massaqua, a very busy gentleman uh, who I have gotten to know in one of his roles, and that's uh, we, we are both on the board of an organization called Philadelphia Youth Sports Collaborative, a nonprofit that focuses on on kids in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, Tim Tim has uh, been very active professionally. Uh, he'll tell you about his professional background in working with kids that um, have experienced trauma. Uh, and um, uh, the role that uh, sports plays in helping those kinds of kids. Uh, this is something we address uh, at uh, Philadelphia Youth Sports Collaborative. So uh, welcome, Tim. And um, let, me, uh, let me kick it off by just asking you to talk about what you are doing professionally uh, and, and, and your previous job as well. Well, first, uh, let me thank you guys for having me on. Um, great platform, great, great topic, hard topic um, for a lot of us across our country. So, but it's a needed topic and these conversations need to happen. 
And so, you know, it's opening up in many forms around the country in different ways. So uh, just want to thank you guys and, and say I appreciate, you know, this platform and, and this conversation. Um, so, yeah, so my work over the past, I'll say 12, 13 years now has been working directly with adolescents. Um, I currently am the founding social worker at a uh, founding high school in Camden, New Jersey, uh, KIPP. Cooper Norcross High School. Um, this is our first year in the middle of a pandemic. We decided to start a school. So that has been a journey in and of itself. And uh, the past five years, I was the director at a youth uh, shelter, runaway homeless youth shelter, called Youth Emergency Service, uh, servicing runaway homeless youth uh, in Philadelphia. And through our run national runaway homeless uh, program, we service youth nationally who just happened to be in, uh, I would say internationally, actually, just happened mm. to get stuck in Philadelphia. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and then in addition to that, uh, serving on the board at the, the collab, uh, youth, uh, at PYSC. And then I also serve on a board called uh, Youth Collaboratory, where it's a national organization that does similar work as PYSC in um, supporting nonprofit organizations who actually do the work. Uh, youth Collaboratory supports those who support runaway homeless youth across uh, our country. And then lastly, um, uh, I'm a, a licensed therapist, so I, I work with uh, individuals who seek counseling and therapy. Um, so, you know, just stay a little busy. That's all. <laughs> a little that's busy. awesome. That's awesome. We, we definitely appreciate your services to society to, you know, to address those disparities uh, within uh, within your local community. And it sounds like you're doing some international work on the international scene too. So that's that's really awesome. Um, you know, um, there's a book out by Ken Coster uh, called Know Your Why. And uh, he talks about the importance of knowing why we, you know, are engaged in certain aspects of, of our work. And, you know, you know, particularly as we talk about this topic here this, today, uh, Tim. So just let, I just want to go a little deeper and ask you, um, why, why, tell us a little bit about your personal story as it relates to racism and why addressing this whole topic of, of racism is, is important to you. Um, so my, my why is definitely, I think, I would say I have a unique perspective in my background. So I grew, I was born in New York. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and I I was raised in Newark, New Jersey back in the 90s, right? So yeah. Newark, New Jersey in the 90s is a, if you know about Newark, New Jersey in the 90s, it's a, it's a time of um, just a lot of stuff going on in the African-American yeah. community, right? <laughs> um, and so uh, at one point, my mom, because of my older brothers getting into some, some really difficult situations and circumstances uh, in the streets, my mom decided to send me to live with my aunt um uh, rest you know uh, rest her soul uh in allentown pennsylvania so uh and we ended up uh moving to whitehall pennsylvania but then shortly uh moved into the suburbs of allentown and you talk about one a 180 experience from uh honestly the only white people i saw in in newark were my teachers to mm. be one of the only black uh, kids in the whole school and wow. the only as I recall it and I tell this story and I've looked it up I was the only black boy in my graduating class the whole time wow well we had oh six gosh. or seven black girls 
and I was the only black boy in uh, my at my high school in my graduating class. So we had other black kids, including my cousins. <laughs> I got to right, count right, my cousins right, as right. part of the population. But <laughs> right. It was only me in my class. Right. Right. Uh, me, me and maybe one other kid. But just in general, um, just a few and far as far as like people who look like me in an environment where it's predominantly uh, middle to upper class uh, white families. And yeah. so my 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 perspective is so unique in that I've seen two different aspects of society when it comes to racism. Um, and I'll be completely honest, you know, in the conversation, we can talk about it. I've had two major experiences with racism in Allentown, yeah. but if you look, if you look at opportunities, I, I had a great experience in my, in my, in my, in my uh, childhood, in my adolescence. Um, I had great friends. Most of my friends were white. Yeah. Oh, so it's, it's a weird dynamic. Um, and as I think deeper, I think there were levels to it. There were reasons why my experience was the way it was uh, heavily. I, I would say um, there's two parts. I think I was a like a likable person, but I also knew I was a pretty damn good athlete. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. with, with yeah. being a good athlete comes certain privileges and certain things you yeah. don't deal with, you know, and that's just a reality. Um, I, I think most black athletes who have that experience, who have excelled at some level, and even athletes in general, there's a yeah. certain there's some sometimes you don't deal with certain things other people deal with because you're held right. in a prestige because of your performance, what you can do. So my 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 perspective, I say let's say, is very unique when it comes to racism. But I've had two very distinctive and stark experiences with racism that have stood with me every day for the rest of my yeah. life. And I'd like to hear racism. about them if, yeah. you, if you absolutely if you're comfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm I'm comfortable with it. Um, so the 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 first one, um, was uh, it was actually on the football field. So I I played football. Um ran track, played basketball. The first experience I had was uh, we're on the football field and we're playing in a team who were historically known for being racist. And um, so I, I got tackled and it was my junior or sophomore year. I got tackled and, um, and, and I was a big receiver. I was about 6'1", 6'2", um, 195 pounds. And it, it would take a lot of guys to tackle me because I was a big dude. And so Finally, three or four dudes tackled me, and I, at the bottom of the pile, uh, you is I don't know the language on you guys show, but you, it's all it's, you we know, want you to be uh, as transparent. Just go for it. You, you fucking nigger. We fucking yeah. you fucking monkey. Like I'm on the bottom of the pile, and these kids are saying these things to me, and I, it was the first time I would say out, outright, out explicitly, I experienced being called the N word. You know, and I was shook. I, I didn't know who did it. I, I was losing it. Um, I was really upset. Uh, I told my coach uh, and my coach who I love and who, again, dynamic situation, who I consider a father figure told me, go out there and make them pay by your play, which was what I did, you know, and I, and I, I killed them. I, I completely destroyed this team. Um, and at that time, I thought that was great advice because I channeled that energy into um, helping my team succeed. But as an adult, I know there's an opportunity missed to address an issue. Um, and, and again, you're talking about the mid 90s. Uh, so 
these conversations, as far as people being comfortable having them now, that wasn't the case 20 something, or, you know, almost 25, 30 years ago. It <laughs> right. So yeah. this wasn't, it wasn't the norm to have these conversations about racism. So, but as an adult, as I grew, I was, you know, I felt like while the first part was good, he missed the second part to advocate for me and, and let people know that this wasn't right. And I'm a sick 15 year old kid, so I don't know any better at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, I got to Allentown when I was, I would say 12. And my mm-hmm. experience was great. I had friends, I had love, I had support, I had great teachers. And so I didn't really experience that level of racism until that first time I was on the football field. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us. I, I mean, even as you sit here and, and, and um, telling your story, I can hear a little bit of the of the re-traumatization of Absolutely. that experience. Yeah, you hear the tremble in my voice because as I say it, yeah. I, I, I relive it, you know? Yeah. And and for me, um, I dealt, I've dealt with it over the years. I, I've come to really understand um, racism in our country, but you just can never get over it. You can never yeah. get over it when you experience something like that. And it sticks with you the rest of your life because I vividly remember the whole situation. I remember, you know, just hearing the words, hearing me, hearing, hearing being called the N-word, being called a monkey, being called everything in the book that's, you know, has been said about Black people historically. And just like the anger I felt. I was yeah. pissed. I was just really pissed off, but I didn't know who did it. So if I, you know, I probably would have took somebody's head off had I known. Yeah. But you were also in a vulnerable position. Absolutely. I was I was under a pile and yeah. like I was very much restrained. So I really couldn't really, you know, if it was probably a one-off situation, I probably would have broke my hand because I would yeah. have tried to knock somebody's head off, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't really grasp how cutting to your soul it is to be called the n-word they don't really get it i don't think well i don't think people will ever get it be, unless you can call the n-word that's the only time you get it so. yeah 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 you know i think um you know even hearing you call it say the n-word even even us as as men of color it's hard for us to say the word nigga yeah unless yeah. it's in a rap song or unless we see it in the mo- in the movies because we know it does. It does cut to the inner parts of our being. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I can I can relate. I can relate to the first. I can remember the first time I was called that, and I remember the person adding to that, saying that I was black and I was dirty because mm-hmm. I was so dark. Your skin, go wash your skin. You're so black and you're so dirty, you nigga. And I so even even hearing even like talking about it now. You know, in, in my fifties, I can, I just can. Uh, I can uh, empathize with you and I really appreciate you uh, being vulnerable and transparent to share that. Cause you know, we, we abbreviate the term that, you know, people say the N word cause it's even for us, it's hard to, to yeah. say it. Yeah. Uh, so. There was a um, article, uh, uh, op-ed in the, they don't call them op-eds anymore in the New York times this week written by a linguist uh, about the word, the N word and, and the history of the word. And um, it was very thought provoking. And, and part of it was about the time at which it became a word that you could not say. Mm. Uh, about 20 years ago, there was a shift and it became one of those 
two words that you cannot say. I won't say what the other one is. It's, it's a sexual term. Um, and uh, if you guys haven't seen it, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. It was really interesting yeah. uh, from a white person to read this. Mm. Because we often don't go deeper than knowing that that's not a word that you say to how it evolved. I mean, this goes way back. I mean, it was a really scholarly piece. I mean, it was some of it I couldn't even understand. It was so, you know, so technical. But um, anyway, it's funny that we've, it's interesting that we'd be talking about it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. What is the uh, what was the second? Uh, the, the second uh, was being racial profiled um, in, in Allentown. Right. As I say, it is <laughs> the, the 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 weirder dichotomy, I guess, or of my experiences like I've had. An ama- I grew up in an, an amazing space, but I also experienced some awful things. So I was about um, 16. I think 17. I was um, I graduated high school. I was on my way to Michigan. Right. I was on my way to the University of Michigan. Um, It was the summertime um, right before I went to Michigan. So a friend of mine uh, and and this is again and this has to do this story to me is directly aligned to some of the work that I do today with young people making decisions. So Mm. 617, uh, my friend, um, he was an older cousin. I had a gun in his house. And he said, you know, we're going to take my cousin's gun to him because he asked him to bring it because we we're going to go hang out. One of the last times I hung out with my friends. And so we put the gun in my mom's car. I had my mom's car. Um, so we're driving down one of the main streets in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I got pulled over. So... Mm. I didn't break any laws. I did. I wasn't. I didn't run any lights. I hit every stop sign. Did every. I did everything that I've learned how to do as far as a driver. So got pulled over, um, and a cop, you know, asked what we're doing. We're going to our friend's house, right? So he ran our plates, right? And this is again, you talk about chance and opportunity. My mom didn't update our uh, her ex her uh, not registration. Her get her get her. Um, Inspection. You know, we have to do state inspections. One of the only states, right? You have to do inspections. So she didn't update her inspection. So the cop runs her place and she he says, Your your registrations, your uh you didn't do your state inspection. Um, we have to search your car. That's not true. It's not true at all. It's not really the law that says if you don't Mm -hmm. have inspection or pass inspection, we have to search your car. So cop has an opportunity searches the car he asked us right a decision making he asked mm. us prior to do you have any weapons or drugs that i should be concerned about first response was to lie no we don't my heart is beeping beating a mile a hundred miles a minute i know i'm lying to this cop there's just just this fear right i'm making mm. bad decisions left and right <laughs> as a 16 17 year old kid, just making really bad decisions so we searched the car we got out the car we didn't have to leave the car we didn't know that we got out the car. They didn't tell us why they pulled us over. And they found a gun. The cop pulls his gun and puts it to my forehead. And he says, you motherfucker, you motherfucking liar. So the cop says to me, put your fucking hands up. So I put my <laughs> hands up. My friend puts his hands up. The, the, he had a, uh, another female cop come around. They slam me against the hood. And he's just cursing at me. Just, just, just cursing at me. Just like. He was really mad. He's apparently pissed off because um, 
you know, he got pulled over. I mean, because we lied to him. So, so they take us down to the, to the precinct and um, I'm in the holding room. I'm in the, I'm in the holding room um, with my hands uh, handcuffed around my back. And I'm, I'm, then it's a random TV. And I don't know why, but I'm like picturing ESPN coming up, like literally as I'm in the jail cell, like uh, Tim Massacre, our local football superstar, gets arrested, bro. Because I just see the lot, the whole thing on the TV. I'm looking at TV, like, am I going to flash up on ESPN? Like, just a really just naive, dumb <laughs> thinking at that point. So, yeah. um, but while I'm there, uh, a detective walks by. He's looking at me, like staring me up and down. And he, he walks by and he comes back and he, he opens the door. He asks me, are you Tim Massaqua? And I was like, yeah, yeah, sir, I am. And he's like, what are you doing here? I was like, I, you know, I was like, I don't know. You know, that's what I told him. And so he said, hold on, I'll be right back. So he goes and he finds the people. And I would say 10 minutes later, I, he came out and he released me and he let, told me to walk out. So the long of it is we fit the description of two guys who were walking mm. who robbed an old lady. Two guys who were walking, not in a car, but two black guys who were walking and they robbed somebody. So we fit the description. So they pulled us over. So fit the description. Fit the description of two meaning black guys. That you were black. That I was black. Yeah. yeah. No black other guys. description. No other description. It was two black guys who robbed an old lady in Allentown. We fit the description. But the guys were walking. Yeah. They were driving. They, yeah. They, were, they robbed their own foot. So, yeah. Um, and then, and, and I tell that story because my friend, he got charged with a felony possession of a weapon and he went through, he was on his way to college. He had to drop out of college to deal with this legal thing. And it took him five to six years of his life to get back on track to go to college. Wow. And you talk about the opportunity, um, young people, the decision-making for young people. Right. There's a couple of things in the story that has always stuck with me. Like, had we been white, would we gotten pulled over? No, right? Because we fit the description. But even so, had we known the law, we could have responded differently. And I promise I've been with, I've been in Allentown with enough kids to know that teenagers break the law all the time. <laughs> and, and now without calling names, I've been with people who drunk drive, been high, just like risk-taking behavior all day long. And I can promise you, we rolled by, I've been in cars, we rolled by officers, never got pulled over. Uh, and it's just, it's just interesting because it's just about opportunity, right? What's the opportunity or chances that you get pulled over or you get stopped because you're Black? And I recognize as an adult, had we not made that decision to bring our friends down, we would not have been in the situation, right? So that's always the argument. Well, what did you do wrong? That's always the argument when something happens, when law enforcement is involved, well, you shouldn't have done this or you shouldn't have done that. Right. But my thing is we were profiled from the gate. We, mm -hmm. were, we were profiled. Had we not had the gun, I promise, I feel pretty much, the situation would have went about the same way. Mm. You know? I, I, and, I, and I truly believe that because as I re, as I remember, 
the cop who pulled us over, he was very intentional about searching the car. He really wanted to search our car. Mm. He, he, he was trying to do everything he, he could do because he had in his mind that we were doing something wrong. And we unfortunately did give him, give him the opportunity to be justified in what he did. Yeah. He was wrong to pull us over, completely wrong. And so yeah. a little bit of the flip side of that story goes back to what you said earlier about having been an athlete. Yeah. Gave you a certain privileges. Me a privilege. Officer who saw you recognized your name because you yeah. were an athlete yeah. and that got you out. Yeah. Recognition. So, but if you hadn't been an athlete, if you hadn't had that. My friend and I would have story. both gone through the same thing charged with felonies. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so when you talk about privilege, privilege is privilege. You know, when you talk about white privilege, it's not just um, about skin color. It's, it's about prestige. It's about recognition. Right. Um, especially locally, I would say maybe nationally, if you're on a larger spot, then that's a different, but when you're, when you're known locally and um, mm -hmm. Dave Chappelle talks about this in, in his, um, he did a, uh, I saw him, he did a sit down with uh, uh, David Letterman on a Netflix mm. thing. He talked about like the fact that he's a local celebrity and there's certain things that he can do in his local town that he can't, but he's also says if I were black, that if I were mm -hmm. black, but if I wasn't a celebrity and a regular black guy, mm -hmm. after things I do, I wouldn't be alive. And that's yeah. privilege. It's just, that's just privilege, you know? And that's one of the things we talk about when we talk about racism and, and white privilege. It's just not white privilege. It's just privilege in general, to me at least. Yeah. Now let me, that reminds me of a question I want to ask you that I've been, been dying to ask you. It has to do with stereotypes, mm -hmm. right? Mm. The, the black professional, you were a black professional athlete, but even if you weren't, you played at the big house, University of Michigan. And, and when I think of that, that just, you're like, like way up there, you know, from somebody like me who loves sports. But I, but I, when I meet somebody uh, who's black, who looks like he or she was an athlete, that's the first thing I think of. Mm -hmm. I don't think of the person all the other things that you might think of now, do I think that way when I see a white person? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm talking about black and, and I'm wondering, uh, and I try hard to not go there mm -hmm. when I meet people and I can give you an example, a couple of examples, uh, but I'm wondering how that is on the other side. It is something that I've dealt with my whole life. Mm. Um, it's, and it is, it is something I used to wear with a badge of honor. But again, as you grow and as you get wiser, you understand that my black body had been, um, I would say mystified, right? So the fact mm -hmm. that I was a big black dude, uh, white folks used to come up to me all the time, especially traveling, you must play football. You play football, what's your name? You must be an athlete, right? Because, um, I think they I think there is a and I don't know, I really can't say, but I, I always felt that, again, I, I, I wore it like I was proud, like I was recognized. But as an adult, as somebody who is a therapist and who understands um, thinking and how how we how we respond to the world, there's certain places that we put each other. 
Yeah. As a big black guy, I have to be an athlete. If I'm not an athlete, I'm a waste of a body. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm wasting my body. If mm-hmm. I'm not an athlete, I have to be an athlete. Right. Because I'm a big black guy. I look athletic. So I have to be a pro athlete. Mm-hmm. Right. And so our, our black bodies have been mystified and, and just in some sense glorified, but also have been put in a box for centuries now. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think about it, though, it goes back to um, the slave trade. Slavery. Yeah. Slave trade, yeah. Right. Being on the stand and being on the stand, yeah. uh, just, you know, being um, objectified. And I had that feeling. I, I will tell you now that when I got drafted um, and I don't know if they do it now, but the NFL did a disgusting job of that during my um, the scouting combine. It was just really despicable. And I think it's, I don't think they do it anymore, but we would go into a room with all the coaches. We would do our, uh, at that point, it was a body fat scan. This is 2005, 2006, and this could be controversial. I don't care. But during the combine, when you, after you go in, it used to be an egg. We would go into the egg and it, the egg would measure our body fat. But then after we got out the egg, we would just be in our, um, our compression shorts, which are tights, short tights um, that came up to the middle of your thigh and nothing else, no other clothing, we would go directly on the stage in a dark room with the light shining on us. Oh. The coaches could look at our bodies. Oh, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's a practice now, but that's the one time I felt like an object. I yeah. really did. It was a horrible experience. Everybody did it. So I was quiet about it. But I, all, I always felt that was a horrible, embarrassing situation to be in. But I wanted to go to the NFL, so I put up with it. And mm-hmm. I didn't say anything yeah. about it, even though I felt awful about what had just happened, that experience. Reminds me it's of the old Miss America contest with the mm-hmm. swimsuit. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a similar. Yeah, they would, wow. ask, you, yeah, wow. they would uh, ask you to, you know, move your arms out wide to check your wingspan. Turn to the front, turn to the side, turn to the back, look at your muscle structure, um, do a whole 180 turn. And then they, you know, you say your name and uh, you, you got a number. We had yeah, number. Yeah. yeah. You name a number and then they say, thank you, get off, you know, exit the stage. It's interesting how you how you um, shared that when you shared that it's synonymous to I just remember the, just uh, a couple of uh, slave movies, Roots being one of them, yeah, Amistad, and yeah. Amistad being another one. Yeah, and there are scenes in these two movies as you were describing that, Tim. I went straight to me too. Those two, those two movies. Where, remember? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When, when they, they were, were uh, putting the white powder all over white powder. Yeah, that's right. They had the, uh, yeah. the. I mean, this kind of, this may sound a little gross, but it, 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 we're 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 here talk, discussing it. When they would, you know, do the enema, like mm-hmm. all the things, uh, you know, the cleanse it, the cleanse the slave, you know, the slaves out, and just the whole violation of the body, just yeah. treating them like uh, objects, like a commodity. So when you were sharing that, um, it was it was it just it just it's, um, the image of Amistad, uh, the movie Amistad, really snapped. And I really think it's um, it's important to. Um, have these discussions about history, you know, so and, and knowing history around slavery and the traumatic impact of that, that still felt, you know, decades, centuries later, 
and and something going through something like that. Most people would feel honored um, um, to be, you know, drafted into the NFL. And like many of the other brothers uh, that, you know, black and white that was on that stage with you, I, I, I would imagine um, not too many of them felt violated in, in the manner in which you have yeah. because of the depressed, like you said, the prestige and notoriety. I've been working for this all my life and I've been yeah. trying to get to the stage and you get to the stage and then you're treated uh, like an object. You're an object. Yeah. And so, and I think like for black athletes, when, when, when you hear things like just shut up and dribble and you, you know, you hear all of these things, like you're getting paid all this money and things like that, um, that goes into feeding that stereotype of just being a commodity, an object, yeah. not a human being. You're getting paid this money. You should shut up and yeah. Or well, I, I would, yeah, I would say a corollary to that that has bothered me for years um, is there's there was for a long time, probably still is deep in our white society, but it's it's um, it's that. And that's all you are. Mm-hmm. And, and and you you don't have enough intelligence to speak out on anything. And if you do speak out, you're going to be ignored or you're going to be put down. And um, when uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, you know, raised their this, I, I'll never forget that. And it's an iconic image. But but at the time, I kept thinking. Oh man, that's you know, people are not white people are not going to like that. Mm-hmm. You know that that's that's acting out. You know that's protest. They're athletes; they're not supposed to do that. Muhammad Ali. I mean, this I'm going back to my time. You know when I was just yeah. waiting. For, but Muhammad Ali, I remember, um, and I wrote about this this summer. Talked about why he changed his name. You know, and and. Um, that was very controversial. White people couldn't understand how he could change his name to Muhammad Ali. There was just like, that was, and, and he, and he, you know, that was, why would I want a slave name? That's an intelligent person talking about their situation. And, but I think most, most white people didn't see it that way. Yeah. And it's only been recently when black athletes have been speaking out. And um, I, my hope is that a lot of people are listening now. But they have, but but there's this mindset, white people, that they're just athletes. They're athletes, and that's fine, and they can be celebrated, like you were saying. But that's where it stops. Yeah, I mean, if you the movie uh, uh, One Night in Miami, if you ever seen, oh, that movie, was great. Yeah, I think that that scene about Jim Brown is exactly to this day. That is the black athlete experience. Mm-hmm. Everything you did is wonderful. Mm-hmm you oh but you know we can't let niggas in the house right? oh yeah that was, that was that 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 was our experience that was my experience because mm-hmm. aside from the athlete i was feared i've been feared because i'm a big black dude i've always been feared you know mm-hmm. and so and i would say to strangers people who know me you know they're not but when you go to a different especially if you go to a different space when you yeah. go to a different part of the country um i played um, I was I was with the Miami Dolphins, and we uh, our 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 um many times our you know in the off season I would drop my sister lived in Atlanta, so I would drive from um, South South Florida to Atlanta in the off season because I trained there as well. 
um, at a training facility. And every time I rolled, uh, I would say um, Gainesville, <laughs> man, and, and I had the, I only stopped to get gas. And that was like the hardest thing to do to stop to get gas on a major highway that what that is not a rest area, but there's a gas station. It is so hard to do in the South, mm. a black person. <laughs> it, because you, you get people staring into your soul. And many times when I drove and I had to get gas, I would at one time when I when I drove back because um, I would have to go to Macomb, Georgia and these really southern spaces. And I was like, OK, make sure I got enough gas to at least get to a rest stop, like a rest stop on the highway, on the international highway at that. But if I were to stop and pull over off that highway and go into like a local town, a rural space, mm. it, you're you're rolling the dice. And I don't mean wow. to be dramatic, but it really is. That's how you feel because you're looked at and you're stared at and you know, somebody wants to say something, but I'm also a big guy. So they they're smart about it. <laughs> so yeah, that was tough. That was, that yeah. was really tough. Uh, do you, do you, that reminds me of a personal story. Um, yeah. I graduated college in 68 and I spent the summer in California and I drove back to time my, trip back to go to the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Uh, and um, so I was driving through Utah, uh, or I, stopped, I guess I stopped one night in Reno, Nevada. And the next day, I picked up a hitchhiker, a young black guy. And um, uh, so where are you going? And he said, Chicago. I said, that's where I'm going. So, he, you know, I, we went along, we camped out. But we're, we're climbing the hill, the hills of Utah. I've never been there. I don't think about it. we stop and we go into a place like you were talking about and I could feel the eyes on me and him and I'm, I'm white. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like for him. Yeah. You know? But that's yeah. just, I think, I think I see here in those two perspectives, right? So you have the fear of being African-American and you, then you have the fear of being with, or befriending an African-American. And many of us have heard this term nigger lover. And I think that's what creates this divide and mm. creates, continues the perpetuation of racism because I have a lot of white friends and John, you're one of them, so you just have, <laughs> and, 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 and I don't see you, and to be honest, I'm being transparent here. I don't see you, I don't see you as um, any different than any of my friends that are, that are black. We hold the same value systems. We speak the same language when it comes to, you know, life and how we want to live. And we uh, visit Both the same families. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we visit the same places. You know, you like, you know, vineyard. I like the vineyard. We, so I think I think um, as long as we can. And, and another thing that's coming out of this this process here is this whole concept of storytelling. Mm -hmm. By us telling yes. our stories and sharing and having you know, and we dub these courageous conversations and making them intentional. This is where, in my opinion, this is where we can begin to break down this wall of, of racism because, you know, you have covert racism and then you have overt racism. And I think we're in such a covert state state of uh, society right now where there's things that are being done. Uh, but while we're moving, we're moving uh, in a sense with this police brutality and all this killing of unarmed black men that's starting to be more in your face 
cope, uh, um, you know, uh, overt racism. And, if, you know, again, if it wasn't for that, you know, the advent of technology and stuff like that, these things have been going on for years that we're seeing in the media today. But I really appreciate, Tim, you sharing your story, because I think that's where, that's how me and John relationship has um, meshed to what it is today, to us to get on and want to do and have the same compassion to talk about these issues because we share our stories. And mm -hmm. I think the more vulnerable and the more transparent we can be as, as, as individuals, let's forget about race, just as people, as human beings, uh, to share our stories, I think um, it will make for a better, a better place to be in a better world. Um, I think, uh, thank you, Tim, for sharing your personal story. And I wanted to ask you, um, like how did how how can you use that your personal experiences um, in the and and you know in your professional work with kids? How do you? I know you mentioned one one thing about decision making. I knew when I was growing up, my coach was telling told me every decision that you make determines your destiny, mm -hmm. and I I, I I I keep that with me to this day. So share a little bit about like what you, you shared a lot about your personal experiences with racism and the decision making. So how how can that help guide your work? Uh, with young people? I mean, I think um, uh, with, when I work with young people, um, young people of color, because I want to be clear about, um, so I work, so as a therapist, I work across the board. I work with, uh, across the board, different ethnicities, young, old, black, every, I would say almost across the board, uh, as far as the client, the clients I see. Um, when I'm working with young people who um, live in some difficult conditions in Philadelphia and, and now Camden, New Jersey, I have a different approach. My approach is, and, and I'm, I'm a Christian, so it's spiritual. Um, I'm planting seeds of hope in them. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying my best every time I come across a young person to make deposits of positivity and of and, and forecasting greatness in them and just pouring we call it pouring into right i'm pouring as much positive and greatness into them as i can because i only had the experiences i had um across the board from black white my family friends because those people poured into me my same coach who is <laughs> so funny my same coach who didn't take the opportunity who told me to use my anger on the field to make them pay was the same coach who said to me when I was in high school, this is when we lost our last game of the season, he said to me, this is nothing. You're going to be playing on Sundays one day. And at that, and I got to tell you, like, I didn't ever think I was, I didn't have a goal to play in the NFL. I did not. I, I, I just wanted to go to college for free. <laughs> and I had a con So that was, I just wanted to go to college for free. And I got right. to the, I got to the great University of Michigan. But he told me he he saw in me that you are going to be playing on Sundays one day. And wow. I had people in my life who men who put those things into the universe and poured into me that manifest itself. And so when I approach and engage young people, I'm just trying to pour into them as much as possible. I'm pouring greatness. Right. I, I'm just pouring positivity. I, I'm pouring expectation of success. And I'm, I'm helping them deal with their trauma. But at the same time, when I'm trying to help them take the trauma out, I'm trying to help them instill some positivity and hope into their future for success. Because my thing, honestly, 
um, and I've said this to uh, people I work with, I'm not concerned in my life right now with my generation ending racism. I am not. I am concerned with the children that we're bringing up who have the opportunity to take advantage of every opportunity to be exactly who they want to be. That's my focus because we're not going to get it right. We haven't gotten it right. I'm just being honest. We haven't gotten it right. We have systems that we cling on to and hold on to because we are not willing to try a different way. Some ways we are now, but you talk about the creation of this country. And John, I've said this. Uh, I, I think Kiva, we talked about this before when we had our uh, discussion on PYSC. Sure. Yeah. This, this system is hard to break because this system was built with our forefathers. Yeah. It's going to be really hard and intentional and take generations to break the system. So my engagement, my energy is not, and there's people who do that and like that's, that's, that's their journey. But my journey is really into pouring into my black and brown kids and my white kids, mm-hmm. right? So they can have a different perspective mm-hmm. and really be a perspective of love and looking at a person for their values and how they act as opposed to the skin, the color of their skin. Wow. That's, that's, that's my perspective. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah. and I don't feel ashamed about it. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, that's just the way I move. So that's why I work with young people. Again, I work with young people of all colors, of all different backgrounds as much as possible. And that's my goal. Because if we can instill something in them, then that's when it'll shift. Yeah. It'll shift. Now, um, you you talked about hope, but I remember you alluded to that other conference where we were all listening and talking. Uh, You said something that really hit me. um, And I wonder if you remember it. The question was, how are the kids that you're working with? How do they mm-hmm. view white people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they don't care about white people like that. <laughs> like they, I, and I don't mean to say it in a disrespectful way, but their issues and the conditions of their situations won't allow them to worry about racism. Hmm. They're too focused on other things that are immediate, right? So. They understand racism is there. When I work with kids, they understand racism is there. They understand bigotry is there. They understand all the isms are there. But their situations yeah. are, are, some of them are very dire. Like, Kiwi, you know, you, you, work, you, yeah. you work in the, the homeless system, the runaway, the shelter system. We don't have time. To, we got to figure out where we're going to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now at the shelter, these kids, yeah, there's, they're anger because they're experiencing trauma. Their trauma is more important than racism. Yeah. It, it really I, is. <laughs> I would know? even add, I would even add, I was reading, uh, uh, and, and John, I would love to see that article on, um, that you were talking about earlier, uh, about the, the, the word nigger and how, how that, how that come, you know, how that's being articulated. I, I also received uh, an article from the New York Times and was talking about this very this very subject we're talking about now about um, the plight of uh, black young black America, and 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 the writer uh, coined this uh, this phrase that young black men just like you said Tim don't have time to to really delve into uh, deep dive into what racism is and trying to dissect that because they have to be quote unquote they're too busy being quote unquote on point. 
Mm-hmm. And it's this concept of on point in the streets. And being on point in the streets means you're watching your, you're watching your back. Level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You're watching your back and you're on point to make sure that at the end of the day, if you see danger coming, you can spot it a mile a minute. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really like this, uh, this internal instinct that young people, I grew up in New York too, Brooklyn. And so Tim, I, I think you understand when we talk about the cold of the streets, there's a certain mm-hmm. cold of the streets you have as a young person, you know, where to go, where not to go. And so they're talking about this, this concept of being on point and how, how that within itself causes a lot of stress. Yeah. To walk down the street as a particularly now as a young black person with all that's happening in society of cop car pass. How do you how do you stay on point so that you can make sure that you get home uh, um, safely? So I think, you know, when you say, uh, you know, white, you know, young kids don't really have time to really, you know, build relationships with with, with white people. I think that's very realistic uh, and it's also um a sad reality of, of where their focus is on a daily basis um, and not trying to be, uh, you know, re-traumatized, so to speak. They're trying to protect themselves from that every single day. It's, it's a tough situation. Yeah, yeah tough situation. Um, that like in Philly now, our kids are dying at a clip that is unprecedented. Yeah. Like our, kids are, our kids are dying in it. And it's, it's sad to say it's, it's not directly by not sad to say, but it's it's not directly by racism. Our kids are dying. Our kids aren't dying right. from racism right now in Philadelphia. Right. Our our kids yeah. are dying because of each other, because of decisions, because of trauma. So racism, I would say, in our city, it, it's not the biggest thing we're dealing with right now in in Philadelphia. Yeah. Our kids are dying, very 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 um, horrible deaths in the 16, 15, 14, like, like our kids are dying really, really at the, in the, like futures are, are being stripped away. And so when you talk about focus and, and having a survival um, in the streets in your community, it's not racism that are killing our kids. You know, it's circumstances, it's each other, just being, let's be transparent, let's be honest, it's each other, it's, it's, it's trauma, it's stress, it's anger. It, it, it's just hopelessness. Those things are what's killing our kids. And so when you talk about dealing with young people and their trauma, it's not about racism for our kids. I can't say that across the country, but in Philadelphia, it's not about racism. Mm. It's about a bad system. <laughs> it's yeah. about an oppressive system, but within the pre- oppressive system directly, um, it, it's really not about racism. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, this is going so fast. We're about five minutes from stop and we promise to let you go for your, um, <laughs> I, I, I have about 50 more questions. Set in front of, <laughs> um, touched on. We may have to do a part two on this one. Uh, I'm cool with spirituality, that. Uh, we could go down that avenue. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. I think uh, the three of us share something in common. Uh, I believe you were you were both raised without a dad in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dad died when I was very young. Uh, the impact of other people on our lives. You mentioned your coach. Mm-hmm. Could talk about the impact of of mentors and there. So there are a lot of other things. 
is there something though that this has generated, this discussion has generated that you'd like to conclude with, Tim? Uh, anything that uh, comes to mind or something that we should have asked that uh, we didn't? No, Kiva, I, no, um, I think what Kiva alluded to earlier is I would say more so, um, I think it's really one of the things that's really going to help us turn this tide of racism in our country. It's looking at each other's characteristics, like really embracing Martin Luther King's words, like looking at our personalities, how we treat each other and seeing each other as valuable. Seeing my, my pastor talks about seeing a human being as, as valuable and precious Mm. like precious yeah. and valuable like we're all are precious and valuable yeah. and if we can really start to adjust our lens and see each other as precious and valuable our perspective will change and i'll also say um Kiva, i know you do uh diversity equity and inclusion work yes um and i know there are a lot of um that is popping up it is, uh, and, and, and people of color are starting to be recognized and being put in a position of authority. Um, and it's great. But I also, for my listener, my, 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 my list, the listeners who are white on, who are listening to this, I will really say the homework for, for those listeners is to really, when you're home, and when with your family, that's the work. Yeah. That is the work. Yeah. Yeah. The conversations we have, the, yeah. the theories, when you see stuff happen on the news, how you respond. Yeah. yeah. The thoughts that come up, that's the work that's going to change and mm -hmm. hopefully end racism one day. Wow. It's so interesting yeah. you say that because Toni Morrison. Um, in the book, White Fragility, there's a quote about Toni Morrison's work. And she talks about this concept called race talk because mm -hmm. we all do it. And mm -hmm. exactly. I, and, and, and basically what she's drilling down to is we, you know, we have to watch the conversations that we have, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes they may not, they not, may not be intentional, intentional in terms of bringing about harm. If you're around your friends, if you're a, you know, a white family and you're around your friends and you're having these conversations that they're grading and nobody's checking you on that, it becomes normalized yeah. as a part of the race talk process. And the same thing with us. Like when we, you know, when people of color and I get with my boys, I'm, I'm always consciously aware not to you know, say anything derogatory or yeah. you know, always some respect. I'm doing that work too. I'm trying yeah. to change my language. Yeah. I'm trying to change my thinking around my friends, uh, my go-to automatics. I'm trying to change it. And, you know, that's good. Yeah. That's the work. That's the work. Mm -hmm. That's the work. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think the trainings we can go, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I teach this stuff at Rutgers. I train on it, you know, or, you know, if not weekly, you know, and at the same time, the real, real work is, it's right here mm -hmm. it's, uh, with me. And I, so I, I like I like how you encourage all of us, not just, you know, um, you know, That's white awesome. families, but everybody, yeah. particularly yeah. now when you see, you know, I got to I, I got to teach my girls. I'm, I'm, my girls are biracial. Now, how do I teach them, you know, how to view, you know, police officers? How do I share with them about what's going on in society? Because we have to educate them on, on the realities of things 
that could potentially impact their lives. So a lot of the work does start within the household. So yeah, appreciate you raising that raising that issue. I, I yeah. think that those concluding remarks, Tim, also bring together some other things that you said and we talked about. And and how the word hope sticks with me. And and one of my hopes is that um, this. Uh, awakening starting last summer across the country will can continue be reinforced but more and more people doing what you're saying and multiplying that at the grassroots level uh, will have an impact yeah you know you're right i mean the systematic the systemic changes are going to be years to to make um and demographics may help take care of it but who knows but but if we can just one person at a time uh, make a difference uh, in terms of racial justice, uh, it will have an impact over time. Mm-hmm. So anyway, awesome. well, thank, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, you want to wrap it up, Kiva? Yeah, sure. Just want to thank everybody for joining us again for another Courageous Conversation here for the Race to Social Justice. And remember, when you're engaged in these type of discussions on racism, It's not about being confrontational. It's all about being conversational. Mm -hmm. Appreciate you all for listening. And and one one final clue, right? While we've been talking black and white, go blue. Go blue. (laughs) 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 All right. Thanks for joining us. All the best. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a good one. All right. Yeah, take care. Bye bye. Bye now.